0: becca welcome to the podcast you are a physical oceanographer um what what on earth is that aren't all oceans physical
1: yeah that's a that's a good question um i usually get asked isn't that the same as a marine biologist so i have to backtrack from that direction but just starting at what is a physical oceanographer is basically like Yes, all ocean is physical, but we look into like, the the, dyna- the physical dynamics of how the ocean works and how water is transported throughout the ocean and as simply as how waves work. So a lot of the time when I tell people I'm a physical oceanographer, they laugh and ask if I'm a surfer because they're like, oh, that would be dangerous if surfers know too much about how waves work. Um, but that's honestly a lot of it. I'm not a very good surfer and my knowledge of the ocean has not helped, but yeah, what I'm working on and what I find interesting is just how water moves and where it comes from.
0: So you're making waves in the world of waves.
1: Studying the motion of the ocean.
0: Oh, very good. <laughs> now, in this podcast series, we try to meet people at various stages in, in their career. Uh, what stage are you at right now?
1: I'm finishing up my master's degree. I started my master's in September of 2020. And working through it right now, Um, working on my thesis, not quite done my analysis, but in an effort to graduate on time, I've been doing both at the same time because, you know, analysis never goes as smoothly as you hope it does. So it's really important. It's been really important for me and for people that I've learned from ahead of me in science who write throughout to make sure that they're doing it. Um, But in terms of where I'm at, I did a, a large ish topic switch in my master's from, I did environmental engineering in my undergrad. Um, So only about a year and a half into my oceanography career.
0: Wow. What's environmental engineering?
1: Um, Environmental engineering is a very general topic. It spans from like water resources and learning about how farmers can better irrigate their land to erosion control and even like wind energy and stuff like that. Um, I was really interested in how pollutants move through the atmosphere, which seems like it'd be really, really different to oceanography. But the the science is actually super similar. So what I'm doing now is a lot of how do different biologically important constituents or biologically important particles in the ocean move and where do they come from and how will we know in the future how many of them we are going to get how do those move through the ocean, um, relates really strongly to how pollutants move through the atmosphere.
0: That makes sense. Uh, Both the atmosphere and the ocean are fluid. Um, Yeah, but it's, like you said, not something that you would um, superficially make the connection between. What got you into oceanography? Why did you make the switch?
1: Yeah, so that's a funny question Um, in my group and a lot of other people in physical oceanography and I laugh about it because most of us are from landlocked areas, which seems really counterintuitive. But I always loved the ocean and I think often people love things that aren't accessible to them. But there's a girl in my group from Czechia and another girl in my group from the land side of the Netherlands. And like we just have had this obsession with the ocean at such a young age. But I didn't want to leave Ontario for undergrad for a number of reasons. And I wasn't 100 percent sure about oceanography yet. Um, Physical oceanography was only like a, a term I learned recently. And I didn't do that well in high school physics. So didn't really think it was the way for me but figured that engineering might be a nice stepping stone to, I don't really know what I wanna do, but I'm good at science, apparently other than physics. I liked high school physics, it was just hard. Um, And I like math, but I don't know what I wanna do yet. And doing engineering isn't going to close doors to me. If anything, it's gonna open them, because in general, um, until you've met too many engineers, people tend to think they're smart. So, sorry. Um, so it was a really, really good degree to just learn the basics of a lot of different things. And most importantly, I think, learn how to problem solve really effectively. Um, but then throughout my undergrad, I just became more and more interested in what oceanographers actually do. I was fortunate enough to when after a couple of research positions at the university I attended to win a research scholarship to attend a university abroad and do research there so I was able to approach a professor in it was Germany specifically I had to approach a professor was able to approach a professor there with funding already and just be like hey I think you're pretty cool and I would love to do research with you I have funding give me a project Um, which was amazing and was my first real step into the world of oceanography beyond a base level interest I immediately got a shark tattoo because I was like that needs to be celebrated I've finally done done something oceanography related um and I loved it it was it's not the area of oceanography I'm studying now it was paleoceanography, oceanography um which is the study of how the ocean used to be Um, which was really cool and we looked at sediments to figure out and based on the the composition of the sediment at different levels kind of like how ice cores work um, you could figure out how the ocean used to move um, which was awesome and the professor I worked for there had co-authored a paper with my current supervisor and found her through that
0: wow that's that's a lot (laughs) um I'm not really sure which point to follow up on, aside from you really should pair that tattoo with a megalodon tooth tattoo. Yes. I, I can lend you a specimen if you want.
1: <laughs> That's great. I, I probably don't need more ideas. I, my, my, my grad school income does not support tattoo delving, but, but maybe. <laughs> uh,
0: in your, your academic career, have you made any discoveries that you'd care to share, either in environmental engineering or in your oceanography?
1: Ooh, discoveries. Um,
0: They could be personal discoveries or world-shattering discoveries.
1: (laughs) Well, I'm getting into the area of my project right now. And just to give a brief bit of background on what I'm doing is that I'm studying the Salish Sea, and that's what my group does. And the Salish Sea is the body of water between Vancouver Island and the mainland of Washington and B.C. So it's the water that Vancouver's is on. Um, and we have this really, really detailed model of the area that we're forever trying to improve and improve to make closer to real world conditions. And my project specifically works on the largest boundary of the model between the Salish Sea and the Pacific Ocean. And what we know about this boundary can have really large effects on what we know about the Salish Sea um, because it's so small. So it'll be significantly affected by the water coming in. So in my master's degree, I'm trying to map out, based on our model and a model of the open ocean, where the water that gets into the Salish Sea is coming from and how that changes throughout the summer and the winter and how that changes year to year. Um, And what we found is that there's a lot of fieldwork done in the summer. People love doing fieldwork in the summer. So we know a lot about what's going on in those months. Um, And that's great. It's great to know that but we don't know a lot about what's happening in the winter. And interestingly in the winter, the winter is very variable from year to year, whereas the summer we get really similar conditions. So I'm gonna be presenting at a conference in a couple of weeks, just talking about that one fact and like we need to know more about the winter. And that's not the point of my thesis, but as part of the motivation, Um, And I'm going into now of really look delving deeper into where it's coming from, especially in the winter.
0: When you explain it like that, it's totally logical that there's a bias towards uh, summer gathered data because, of course, who doesn't like going sailing in the summer and who wants to be out in the sea, you know, on a gray, miserable day? in January. I
1: I used to do field work in Lake Ontario and there's photos of me frolicking in the water and the snow, which is fun when you have a warm hotel room to go back to, but I could not imagine being on a a vessel, a sea vessel for weeks in the winter. It'd be in the, the waves are so much more intense. It would be exhausting, but.
0: Mm -hmm. I can imagine with all the agricultural activity going on here, do you find uh, a lot of Agricultural runoff ending up in the Salish Sea.
1: Um, yes, for sure. Interestingly enough, eutrophication, which is the deoxygenation of water due to um, hyperactive algae growth, and which is often caused by nutrient inputs from agriculture, um, I my great. My third year biological science prof would be very disappointed in that explanation. But here we are. Um, (laughs) Thank you. But um, that isn't a huge issue in the Salish Sea, interestingly enough. There's areas in Puget Sound, which is the channels of the Salish Sea really close to Seattle, um, because those are a lot more stagnant. There are some problems with eutrophication there just because there's a huge population. So it wouldn't just be from agriculture. It's also from like factory um, wastewater inputs into the sea. There are some problems of deoxygenation and eutrophication there due to high nutrient loads, um, but not so much in the rest of the Salish Sea. The the biggest problem the Salish Sea is actually seeing um, due to anthropogenic impacts is actually an increase in dissolved inorganic carbon in the water coming in, which is being sucked into the Pacific Ocean through higher inputs of carbon dioxide. So what the problem is, um, and what is kind of counterintuitive, is that the Northern Pacific Ocean, which the Salish Sea gets most of its inputs from, hasn't actually increased that much in carbon dioxide concentration due to human impacts, which seems great, and I was stoked to hear that. But the problem is, is that naturally, it was already super duper high, which is why it hasn't increased as much because the difference, um, the equilibrium isn't as, doesn't have to shift as much. Um, but because it was so high, it was already really close to a tipping point. So, what we've seen is that even with a small increase in DIC, the dissolved inorganic carbon, a lot of the water flowing into the sea has become dangerously acidic for a lot of organisms. Um, so, less so from people in Vancouver throwing carbon into the water, is more why it's so important to know where our water is coming from because different bodies of water in different Pacific currents will have different anthropogenic and different natural levels of um, dissolved in organic carbon.
0: Do you know why it was already so naturally saturated?
1: Um, that is because the, Pacific Northern, the, Nor- the water in the North Pacific is old, um, which people always look at me weird when I describe water as old, but I think it's a really fun word choice. It's just a scientific choice. I'm not just going for it. um but it's old and old water means water. water is aged by the last time it saw the surface. Um, so every time a parcel of water hits the surface, it age its age restarts, basically um. So really, really old water is naturally high in DIC, not from carbon dioxide, but from the, from organisms, be them plant-based or um, animal-based, die and slowly fall down to the bottom and naturally make the water there really, really high in carbon.
0: Okay. You're talking about the global conveyor belt system yeah. here. Okay.
1: Yes. Yeah. Which is the... The, the backbone of physical oceanography. The
0: backbone of world ecology, as I understand it. Now, you mentioned that this is a bit of a, a tangential uh, research project, uh, pointing out the bias in data. Uh, what are you doing your thesis on?
1: So my thesis on, now that I've noticed the bias in data, I focus more into the winter. Um, well, I'm doing the summer as well, but the winter is the exciting part. Um, but my thesis is on based on these two different physical ocean models that I'm looking at, one by my group um, led by Susan Allen, which is called Sailor Sailor SeaCast, and the other by the Department of Fisheries Oceans. Oh no, they changed their name this week. It's called they're called Fish now. Um but they were the Department of Fisheries and Oceans, the governmental organization on oceans. Um and they have this model called the um PSYOPs, which is the Coastal Ice Ocean Prediction System, um, and they have one for the West Coast. So I've been comparing and my group's model and that model, and putting them together to try to figure out where the water coming in comes from, and trying to quantify that.
0: Now you explained um, or you, you mentioned that you've done field work uh, in the Great Lakes, um, and I'm sure it's been a little limited here because you've only just arrived. Um, but one of my favorite parts of these interviews has been hearing about field stories. Apparently, the field is this magical place where crazy things happen and the best mistakes uh, occur. Um, I've never gone to the field myself, so like you said, uh, people who don't have um, access to the ocean love the ocean. I haven't gone to the field. I love these field stories. Do you have anything that you'd care to share? For
1: sure. Um, Yeah, I will just say before I get into that where I don't do fieldwork right now as part of my project, but I'm hoping to in the next if when I continue into a PhD, I'm hoping to incorporate fieldwork more so. But the fieldwork I did throughout my undergraduate degree is where I really learned that like prime troubleshooting that I got in my degree. And there's so much of being out in a remote location, something breaks and 90 percent of the time the answer is duct tape. And that's great. That's great to like kind of take the veil off of thinking that science is this perfect thing that has this set step-by-step process because so many problems are fixed with duct tape. At at UBC last year, I took a methods in oceanography field course, which was super fun. Um, but as we are all keenly aware, 2020 and 2021 were weird years. So I did not take the traditional version of the course where they would go to Bamfield, which is a scientific research station um, on the west coast of Vancouver, Vancouver Island. We actually did the best of what we had and did the field course in Vancouver Harbor instead. Um, I was disappointed at the time, but I will have many opportunities to go to Bamfield throughout my career here. So it's not the end of the world. And it was actually just like a really interesting and fun experience to learn so much about how the environment works at a place that I live and like can walk 10 minutes to see Um, and like I found out that there are pimples in the bay of English Bay and they look like pimples on a bathymetry map but they're actually these like two maybe four meters wide in diameter just massive holes in the middle of English Bay that show up on a map as I thought they were mistakes. But there are these vents, they think, that have methane deposits underneath the bay that have created these pimples in the floor. And you can see them on a bathymetry map. And when I was doing my research project in English Bay, I accidentally dropped, not dropped, it was still on a rope, but I'm lowering an instrument and being like, why is it still going down? Like, it's like... X many meters deep now, it shouldn't still be going down. And it turns out that I had dropped it accidentally in one of the pimples. And it was very gross when I got it back up, but no harm, no foul. Um, so that was fun. We saw porpoises in English Bay, which was beautiful. And apparently they're common, but I haven't seen them since. So I beg to differ. And I was stoked. And this was right around when I had just moved to Vancouver as well. So I saw So many seals, and was just so excited about seeing seals, and none of the other students cared. Um, But my Instagram was covered with seals that week, and I've gotten more use of them since. But they're still really cool, so I'm not ashamed of that.
0: Going back to these pimples, was the methane burrowing into the seafloor, or was it? it,
1: It's like bubble, like a deposit of of methane. I think this is what it's caused, but I don't. I think it's one of those things that this is a hypothesis, and. We're not one hundred percent sure, um, which is the coolest part about science, um, in my opinion. But yeah, it's. I think there is like a, a like a gas that's being and I methane being released in bubbles that have caused that have made these like slowly larger. So Vancouver Harbor is
0: just constantly farting.
1: Yeah, all the time. That's why it smells okay. so bad.
0: Sorry, um, I, I interrupted you. I just no, <laughs> want a clarification. No, on don't this. worry.
1: Don't worry. Um, no, it was fun. It was an interesting way to do fieldwork in an interesting setting because we were there and at times, depending on where we were taking samples or taking measurements, had to avoid the CBUS, um, which is just not something that usually comes with fieldwork, but was really fun.
0: Now, I'm curious, you sound very passionate about your work. Um, but why should other people be passionate? Why is it relevant?
1: Um, so as I mentioned before why i'm i'm passionate i i think it's really cool um but beyond it just being cool um people should care about my project because it's important to know how the sales she's going to change um, and if we can know more about the challenges it's going to face into the future then we can know more about how to protect it and how to mitigate against those challenges Um, obviously stopping carbon emissions and other pollutants and stopping to put those into the atmosphere is first and foremost what we should be focusing on. But under different, different, um, mediation scenarios, we don't know, we need to have plans for what to do if we don't get all our stuff together.
0: That's very sensible because we probably won't get it uh, together in time, um, (laughs) or at least not all of it. (laughs)
1: Yeah. Um, and even if we do, there is a certain, not to be all doom and gloom, even if we get it together, there's a certain amount of harm that we have already done. And the earth, I'm, wow, I don't think my project's going to solve all of this, but this is why I care about projects like this. But I just want to clarify that I'm hoping to be a part of it, but I'm not going to save the world. Um, but yeah, it's it's important to know what's going to happen, even if it's not necessarily the solution yet, which has been an interesting switch from engineering to um, sciences in terms of like coming, coming up with solutions versus learning more about what we might need solutions for um, has been an interesting shift. But yeah, more generally, I just think that people should care about physical oceanography or oceanography in general for The fact that we know so little about the ocean and that, even though I'm from Ontario, is what got me passionate about oceanography in the first place. Because I, you always hear about space being the final frontier, but I was always treated the ocean as our final frontier because it's here and we know next to nothing, about like 90% of it. We I'm studying coastal oceanography right now, which by all means should be something we've got pretty down pat because not only is it coastal, so accessible by humans, but in a hugely populated area, but we still don't know things. Um, and I still... I'll ask questions to people who have been in the field or older than me, longer than me, and I think they're dumb questions until they look at me and are like, "Oh yeah, we don't really have the instruments to figure that out yet." Um and I that just impassions me so much to continuing to study this and to continue answering questions that are important and seem like they're dumb until you realize that we just don't know.
0: Great. That's a great answer and it really um you open my eyes to how ignorant we are to our own planet. <laughs> you clearly love so much about your work, but um, what's the best part about it?
1: Um, I would say the best part of my work is more generally a best part about research. Like obviously oceanography, I've explained in particular, is what really drives me. But I think that research is so interesting because you can constantly learn. And that's something that I struggled with after my undergraduate degree. I worked for a couple of years, and I really struggled with feeling after a bit and once I had finished the onboarding that I wasn't learning something new every day anymore. And I I like school. Sure, homework is annoying and tests are annoying, but once you actually dig into why you're there, learning is like the best part about being human. And I don't wanna stop doing that. So that's why I went into research and why I wanna continue in a field of research, because I wanna be in a field that's encouraging me to come up with dumb questions and try to learn more every single day.
0: You're fundamentally an explorer, maybe not physically going out into the ocean, but exploring it through your lab and through your computer models.
1: That's a really fun way to put it. I really like that. I'm going to use that.
0: Now, of course, not everything is sunshine and roses. Uh, What's the worst or the most challenging part of your work?
1: Um, The most challenging part of my work is when I run into a coding error in my model. Um, In it, some of them are really rewarding because you get them really quick, and you just pat yourself on the back for being basically a computer hacker. but other ones are really frustrating. I switched um, programming languages in grad school because I wanted, I worked with MATLAB in my undergrad, but wanted to work with Python, A, because that's what my group uses, but B, because I like the idea of open source science um, and Python is open source. And But the model or the simulator that I'm working with is in another programming language that my dad used when he was learning how to program which is called Fortran, not to be mistaken with 4chan. Um, But I didn't think I had to learn it, so I didn't. And after five months of troubleshooting and error that I could have fixed if I just committed to learning Fortran, um, I probably just should have learned it. But my professor is so supportive and really helped me through the troubleshooting process. And we ended up finding error a lot of errors that um weren't causing the model to not work but by fixing them improved and finally just a month ago when we found out what the final error was it was so rewarding but it was a really challenging time throughout then because i just got more and more stressed about whether or not i was going to graduate on time because i was wasting all of this time on working through this issue that i was getting nothing out of but I don't think it was fair to say that I didn't get anything out of it because I've been a lot faster at identifying issues now, troubleshooting. in troubleshooting is a specific skill I learned from engineering, but troubleshooting code is just like a whole other battle. Um, So that's been really rewarding. And I also got really good in that time at multitasking because I said before that I started writing my thesis and writing everything that I could. And I I submitted work to a lot of different conferences because I was like, if I'm not getting this step further, I might as well go to conferences and like show them what I have done to get that experience. And I, oh, maybe I'll just make the most beautiful figure I possibly could. And I did, and I love it. And I don't even know if it's gonna be useful for my thesis, but now I know how to do that. And that's great. And I came up with a really detailed next step, step by step of okay Once I get this to work, what do I have to do next? And what does that look like to make sure that I wasn't wasting my time? And that got really good. That was helpful, but very challenging.
0: I can totally empathize with the frustration with technology at times. I'm a self-described idiot. Um, (laughs) Fortran, wasn't that used in Apollo? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah.
1: I, yeah, I have had some mean words towards Fortran in the past few months. But, you know, now it's being nice to me. So,
0: Do you feel like uh, oceanography is really open and welcoming or do you feel it's more uh, insular and looks after their own?
1: Um, definitely welcoming, for sure. Everyone's been really sweet. There's a lot of like graduate socials and stuff. There's a brewery tour on Friday. Um, and that's been really nice. Starting during COVID was hard. Um, and people definitely did their best, but not being able to meet anyone face-to-face for the first year of my studies was a challenge. Um, but it wasn't an issue of it being insular insular for sure, um, but more of a challenge of just the state of the world. Um, I will say that me and most people in my group and just department in general are a bunch of nerds. Um, so sometimes we can be a little awkward together, but I really love everyone that I work with. And once we at least have like half a beer in us, we can talk. Um, so that's been good. Everyone's really sweet. Um, and I, yeah, I was definitely intimidated for the first while, um, asking questions to people because of the whole COVID thing. And I'm like, oh, I don't really have a relationship with these people, so I don't want to bother them. But once I was able to meet people face-to-face, that just hasn't been the issue, an issue at all. And people are so friendly. And I've had the fortunate um, setup of being put into the um, shared office with PhD students instead of master's students. So I can suck up their intelligence all the time and ask them questions um and that's been really really nice. I've learned a lot just through and I've been able to work so much more efficiently just through being able to ask people who are by all accounts smarter than me as many questions as they'll let me.
0: I can totally empathize with that or I can totally understand it. Sorry. Uh, I started here at the museum uh before COVID and I got to know some of these people and in person they're lovely and they're totally accessible. Then when you see the resumes you kind of think oh Dear God, what did I say to that person? They must think I'm the dumbest person ever.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I, yes, I completely agree. But I've gotten better with that. But like, there's a person in my office who's just like been, and we're just students, but they've been published in nature. And I'm like, do I fangirl? Or do I just like, are we peers? Or am I like a a nature groupie? Um, But no, yeah. So it's been good. And really, yeah, there's some wildly smart people in this department, but it's really fun to... Definitely imposter syndrome at times, but everyone deserves to be here. So,
0: And everyone yeah. has imposter syndrome too. So,
1: Yeah, exactly. And that's been nice to realize.
0: I'm curious. Um, you've made physical oceanography sound really important, uh, really exciting, um, really welcoming. Um, if anyone's listening right now and wants to follow in your footsteps uh, or in your flipper steps, um, what advice would you have for them? What uh, um, experience or courses would you recommend they pursue?
1: Hmm, at like at like a high school level or any a, level. Any level. What would you say
0: to get them on the right track?
1: Oh, that's a good question. Um I don't know. If you're interested in physical oceanography in general, I would recommend obviously taking physics courses are important. I found here, even though I came from a background in engineering, that there are I wish I had a stronger math background. Um, Engineering is a lot of using math for a purpose, which is great. Um, And I loved that. But I think that there's some level of like thinking about math and a way of thinking about math that I don't have. Um, So I'd recommend not making my mistakes, Um, but also like being well-rounded. Like I took a biological or a introduction to marine biology course that was a second year course at my undergrad and I loved it and even though I'm not a marine biologist it was really useful for understanding how the physics affect that the physics that I love of the ocean affects biology Um, because there are no in my opinion there are no interesting questions left that lie within solely physics or solely chemistry or solely biology, all of them are so intermingled. So I, in addition to being better at math than me, I would recommend that people try to be well-rounded um, and try to learn from different areas of science and different areas of the humanities. My One of my favorite courses from undergrad was a course on witchcraft. And like, I don't regret wasting my credits on that witchcraft course at all. That was so much fun and learning different ways to think is always gonna be worthwhile.
0: Interdisciplinarianism is certainly the wave of the future. Mm -hmm. Narrowing it down even more, Mm -hmm. (laughs) what was the course that turned your uh, future? Um, Was it that oceanography course?
1: No, so I already knew I was interested in oceanography and interested in ocean sciences and environmentalism through ocean. But I, for a while in undergrad, thought that I would go more into science communication instead, um, which is still an area I'm interested in for sure, but more so from the perspective of a scientist, just being a better communicator and doing more outreach. Um, But the course that changed my outlook was uh, the air quality control course that I took in my engineering degree. And I... Again, like I didn't want to do atmospheric science, but just working, it was the first time I worked with a numerical model and the first time that I used a model to figure out really, really complicated flows. And again, math that I have been introduced to, but not math that people do. It's a math that computers do for us and building these buildings in a computer and then Saying a storm event happened over these buildings that we have the climatological data for and then figuring out if there's a smokestack there where the pollutant would go and if your grandmother three kilometers away would die because of it, it was really dramatic. Um, we did have an exam question like that, <laughs> but really interesting and really cool and kind of definitely veered me in the direction of fluid dynamics and wanting to learn more about that. and really real. It was the first class I took that stopped making assumptions that made questions too simple. Um, Of course, there's still assumptions built into models, but it really felt like we were answering real world relevant questions. And it definitely changed how I looked at science.
0: That can be a big challenge uh, with any uh, degree program. At some point, you want to stop writing papers for the sake of writing papers and um, answering questions that your profs have had answered a thousand times before yeah. and you actually wanna start contributing to society.
1: Mm-hmm. And it was, yeah, I like, wrote in my diary that year, that, that that week that we learned how to do that. And I was like, oh, like I actually did science today. And it was great.
0: You've been really inspiring today. Um, who inspired you or who inspires you? As you go through your studies.
1: I've always had. The benefit of working. So with some really cool people. And I, I. In my first co-op position in undergrad. Decided. Or I don't know if I decided. The only job I got was a research position. And I was really inspired. that pe- By people who. Didn't make that much money. But loved what they did. And I hate the you're not doing this for the money. So this is why we can pay you so little standpoint. But so I don't want to focus on money stuff, but it was just these people who just really loved what they did. And now I have my supervisor who loves what she does. And like, it is her life to work on the Salish Sea. And she's a great supervisor too. And like, will work on weekends to help me with a problem that I'm having and be like, okay, like you can't figure it out. It's been five months. Just send me your code and I'll figure it out. And it's great. And people like that who are just here because they're passionate, regardless of what people are passionate of, it doesn't have to be physical oceanography. I just, being around people who are passionate about what they do is exhilarating. Um, And people like that continue to inspire me. And who that is in particular has changed throughout any position that I've had. Um, But consistently throughout scientific research positions, there is a human that exemplifies that and has been great.
0: It feels like in the department, we've got a, a critical mass of people who are just passionate about their research.
1: You have to be to go to school for that long.
0: Now, you're at the beginning of your career. Um, I want you to look to the end of your career. What would you like to have as your legacy when you retire? or what would you like to have written on your career's tombstone?
1: <laughs> I hope to inspire people someday. yeah, I think, yeah, I think that's what it would be like I of course hope to come up with good research and hope to have science that people cite in other papers but i i want to be a really happy scientist like i want to have and this is a buzzword but i want to have work-life balance and i want to be doing science but have a life outside of it and i want to inspire people and show them that that's possible um yeah i want that would be ideal for me To just be like still stoked about science and about doing science and research until the end of my career. And maybe not inspire people through having a million Nature articles, but inspire people through the fact that I kept doing it and never stopped being excited about it.
0: I think you're one of the first people who's brought up work life balance. And that really is, um, that's really something that uh, the next generation is looking for, certainly. And I'm sure the generations uh, to come, too, also believe that it's really important. So that's that's good. Again, you're ahead of the curve and, uh, I guess, cresting the wave of futurism. Every I think my metaphor broke down. Every
1: time I hear <laughs> analogies like that, I'm like, oh, no. <laughs> <up."> oh, yes. <laughs> like, <laughs> I was trying to do curve. a surfing
0: metaphor, but I've never surfed a day in my life.
1: <laughs> I... I you know what, I don't think I what I do could really be called surfing either, so it's fine.
0: I swim like a rock. <laughs> so that was you um, projecting your own future. I'm curious, uh, where do you see physical oceanography going in the future? And what advice do you have for young people uh, to an- anticipate some of those changes?
1: Yeah, um, obviously, and I'm sure young people hear this all the time, learning how to program is super important. Um People in my research, or not that I've overlapped with, but who have been here before me, who have decided that physical oceanography isn't for them, all of have really cool jobs in like environmental topics where they program and do modeling for that. So that's a huge one and like really makes you super marketable. I didn't start coding until my undergrad, um but just really like it. I think it's a really fun. I think it's a fun puzzle until I'm troubleshooting for five months. So I guess I can't say that anymore, but fun puzzle in general. Um, I see things, and we mentioned this before, just becoming more and more interdisciplinary, um, which I think is great because I I get scared pigeonholing myself too much into a topic, um, which I'm sure a lot of people can relate To especially early career, not wanting to. when Making a decision about what you want to do for the rest of your life in high school is unfair. So I think it's really cool that stuff is becoming so much more interdisciplinary. There's people in my research group from completely different backgrounds, and we all bring different things to the table and can all contribute in our own way. And I think a lot of professors are becoming more open-minded and minded about the backgrounds that students come from. So I don't have a good answer for your question in terms of like what people have to do to keep up in the game of physical oceanography. Um, But yeah, just.
0: No, I think that's the best answer possible. Uh, There's no one set path to be successful as a physical oceanographer. Um, And that's great for anyone who's listening, because if you'd said you have to do this, this and this, if a person's listening and says, well, I can't do the first two, yeah. <laughs> um, then I guess I'm not going to be an oceanographer. Um, it's, yeah, whatever you want.
1: Yeah, I had a an interview day in one of my courses last week where we had like five different people from different fields of earth sciences who are in the position to hire students. And we were asking them questions and it came up of like, they would repeat over and over again, that you don't really need the technical skills to be hired there. You just have to have a background in science. Like it has to, you have had to have had that scientific mindset and learned how to do the scientific process. But beyond that, you just have to be ready to learn something new and not be discouraged about not being great at something right away.
0: Well, Becca, those are all the questions I have for you for today. Is there anything I missed or anything you want to add before I let you go?
1: No, that was great. I really enjoyed it.
0: You opened my eyes and I had a, a blast. Thanks for listening to On Earth. On Earth is hosted by me and produced by myself, Kirsten Hodge, our editor Mel Woods, and Ollie Beebe designed our logo. On Earth is made possible thanks to the generous support of the Canadian Geological Foundation. For more episodes like this one, please visit our website at pme. UBC.ca slash learn slash podcast, or listen on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next week here on Earth.